This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This episode is the first half of a conversation I recorded with Breed Rogers on the afternoon of Saturday, the 21st of October, 2023. The second half will be published next Tuesday. To ensure you don't miss that, you can subscribe to the Ireland podcast on any podcast player. Apple products have an app called Podcasts, for example, or you can find it on Spotify or wherever you like to listen to your favorite programs. It's better that you search for Salt Hill Media as it takes a while for channels to be indexed. And we're only in episode six. It's a bit of a coup having Breach on so soon, as well as having had Sharon Shannon on episode four. And let's not forget John Devlin. You can also find the second half on salthillmedia.com next week as well. Okay, let's go to that conversation. Band! Wrap it up. This is the Ireland Podcast. Hello. Hello, Fender. Who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Breed Rogers. I'm now an old an old woman at 88, but uh, I have been a pult- I, first, I started off as a civil writer in Northern Ireland in the mid-60s, and then I joined the SDLP, and I eventually became a minister in the new assembly after the Good Friday Agreement, and I'm now retired and enjoying my family. Excellent. Thank you, Breeds, for agreeing to sit with me. It's uh, great to uh, have this opportunity. Uh, Breeds, I wanted to talk about your background and then the civil rights, Sunningdale, the Good Friday Agreement, and then the future. Okay. So that's, right, that's fine. That's yeah. how we're going to frame the conversation. So let's start with your background. Where is home? Well, home is and always will be Donegal because I think they used to say you can take the man from the bog, but you can't take the bog from the man. And I was brought up in the Donegal Gaeltacht, uh, where my parents ran a pub. Uh, my father was from Galway. His name was Stratford, which is hardly a Gaeltacht name. Uh, his he came over with the planters, obviously, and then they they married into the local Catholic and became Catholics. And my mother is from Guidor, uh, one of the locals. So I was brought up there. Uh, I went to university. I went to school in Monaghan. I went to university in Dublin. And then I got married to uh, Anthony, who is also from Guidor, and whom I kind of knew when I, was grow- when, I, when I was younger, but considered him to be an old man because he was eight years older than I mean, when you're 16, you know, someone who's eight years older is out of the question. However, uh, so we got married and uh, he was a dentist, so I went to live in Lurgan. And then when I went to live in Lurgan, I was shocked to find that I was now a second-class citizen because... Uh, Catholics in in the town of Lurgan that I lived in, it was about then 40%, roughly 40% Catholic, maybe 45%. But uh, there were no Catholics on the local council because there was a gerrymander situation where you you didn't vote, you voted for, the, for block voting, they called it. So you voted, if there was 10 places on the council, you voted for 10 people. So the unionists would vote for their 10 
and the nationalists would vote for whoever they wanted. But the block, the biggest block, got all got everything. So no nationalists need apply on the council. And then, then the job situation was horrendous. Uh, Catholics would tell me, oh, no, you couldn't go for that job because you wouldn't have a hope. So the only jobs were teachers in the local Catholic school or Catholics could get into the bank. It wasn't easy to get promotion even in the bank and um, working in pubs, which were mostly owned by Catholics. So really, uh, in the local hospital, it was all sort of unionist-dominated and... I was approached in 1964 by uh, Dr. Con McCluskey and Don Gannon, who was friendly with a friend of mine, and uh, asked, would I help them to collect statistics on discrimination? Because they were putting together information to prove. Because, you know, when you looked at TV, all those, the unionists were always on TV saying, there's no problem, you know, that's just propaganda, you know, that's just nationalist propaganda, everything's fine in the North. And the McCluskeys decided that they had to collect statistics to show that it was actually not propaganda, that the situation was dire. So I, along with my husband, Anthony, uh, he had access to people that I hadn't access to, and we we collected through, be, through being a dentist. Through being a dentist, and a lot of his patients, some of his patients. Uh, I think he had one patient who worked in the civil service. The British civil, the civil service wasn't Northern Ireland in those; it was the British civil service. So I was saying that uh, my husband helped me a lot with collecting the statistics because he one of his patients happened to be working in the tax office, which was of the UK tax office, it had nothing to do with Northern Ireland. And he was able to get information about the employment ratio, say, in the, in the hospital and places like that, in the council. And we discovered that in Lurgan, as in other places, in the whole of Lurgan, which was 45% Catholic nationalist, there was one woman employed by the council as a cleaner in the swimming pool. And there was one guy who was employed uh, as some kind of a caretaker in the town hall, and that was it. Uh, on the council itself, there were no Catholics in any of the jobs in the council except the outdoor, the difficult outdoor jobs in the winter, you know, hard work, you know, cleaning up places and all that. And 25% of the people employed there were Catholics, but it wasn't a job that people were particularly interested in. So the hospital, the local hospital, most, I think probably the most of the nurses were Catholics, but there was one sister. And when a sister was to be appointed, there was no competition. She was just, someone was called in from within the Protestant community and offered the job. So, you know, and all, all the consultants, there was no consultant from the nationalist side. Everything was just unionist. So it really was a dire situation and... They, co- they collated all those statistics all across the north in Fermanagh and Oma and Madalst, everywhere, and brought out booklets and brought it, brought it to the attention of the British, to the British Labour Party. And that provided actually the basis for the Jerry Fitt, for instance, who was, who was at that time arguing for fair play for nationalists or Catholics. And with the result that when they went on TV, they were armed with the statistics that they could deny all the propaganda. And what year was that? That was 1964-65. So would it 
be fair to say that you never had any politics in your life until then? You didn't have any no, politics no. In, in, in Donegal? No, no. When I was growing up in Donegal, my my father would have been Fianna Fáil and my mother would have been from a very Fianna Gael family, so it was what we called a mixed marriage in Donegal. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, Really, when I was a student in Dublin, we used to be interested in elections and that, but it was only, you know, I always thought it didn't matter. It was which side you were on in the Civil War. It was not about anything else. Mm. It was, you know, I could have told you every single house in Ouidor who was Fine Gael and who was Fianna Fáil. It was just, you know, there was that uh, Civil War thing, depend, you know, so it, it wasn't really politics. No interest in politics, really. What did you read in university? I did languages, I did French and Italian. I was going to do French and Spanish, but because I got a Geltert scholarship, mm. uh, I had to go to Galway University because with a Geltert scholarship you had to go to Galway. And all my friends were going to Dublin to do teaching or different things and uh, I wanted to go to Dublin. And I discovered that uh, they didn't do Italian in Galway. So I wrote to the department and said I wanted to study French and Italian. And they wrote back and they said, well, we're sorry, but you're going to have to go to Dublin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I went to Dublin. So there's no politics up until that point in Lurgan where you're mm. exposing... Yeah, the, the discrimination. The discrimination, really, yeah. yeah, yeah. I did, I went to vote, i tell you a story. I did, the first time I ever voted, because I hadn't been voting age before I got married in, in the South... And there was an election in the North in 1960-61, just after I got married. And in my area, I lived in, we lived in that time on, on what they call the wrong side of the town. It was probably a more unionist side of the town because I hadn't been aware of all that division at all. And uh, the candidates, the, there was a Republican abstentionist candidate and there was a, a Northern Ireland Labour Party candidate and a unionist. So I thought, well... I'm, my husband came home, he was having his dinner and I went up to vote and I was going to vote for the Labour man because I couldn't see any point in voting for an abstentionist. And when I went in, it was eight o'clock and they said, oh, you've already voted. And I said, no, I haven't. Oh, they said, yeah, and was stroked through my name. It was a very unionist area. And I said, there's a stroke through my husband's name too. Oh, yeah, he's voted too. I said, no, he hasn't. He's coming up after me. So I realised then that my vote had been stolen. And what did I do? They gave me a pink paper. If there's, it was so funny, actually, looking back. If there's a, if there's a tie, this, this will count, uh, the idea of a tie. I was so angry, I voted Republican. I was just angry at the idea that what, stolen What were your choices? My choices was either a Unionist, Labour or Republican. The Labour Party was the Northern Ireland Labour Party, who actually were, I didn't know them, but they actually were quite quite unionist in many ways. They, but I didn't know much about them. I just knew they were Labour, and I knew they weren't unionist. And I didn't see any point in voting for someone who wasn't going to take their seat. I wanted to vote Labour, but because, I suppose what you say, because... My gander was up where I was, I was so annoyed that I realised the unionists had stolen my vote, mm. that the only way to retaliate, and that has happened all through the North over the years, the only way to retaliate was to vote Republican. And that happened, I could see that happening even in Drum Cree in the marching season when, uh, when you know, I worked a lot in Portadown on the marching area and 
you know, I had a lot of, me two thirds of the, of the nationalist community in Portadown always voted for me. And uh, the interesting thing was that as things got worse and people were denied their rights and they were battered off the road and they were prevented from walking, people began to turn more towards Republicans as the best way, if you like, to kick the Brits is to vote Republican. Mm-hmm. It was it was a, it's a knee-jerk reaction, an illogical reaction, if you like, but it was a gut reaction. And that's what I had, a gut reaction to the fact that the unionists had stolen my vote. How dare they? I'm just going to tell them. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here and I'm asking to go back in time and then ask you, how can you be sure it was the unionists that took your vote? Because it was all unionists. There was no, all the people in the, in the polling station were unionists. In those days, everything was run by the unionists. And I knew, apart from the fact that I was in a unionist area, and there would have been the odd Catholic living there, you know, but... Um, all the people around me, the officials and everyone, I know they were. I knew they were all unionists because the place was so divided at the time that I wouldn't have known very many f- from that side, as they say, from that side of the house. But um, I just knew that I, I had heard people talking about, you know, uh, the, the way that unionists seal votes and that personation at election time. I'd heard about that, you know, but then I realised that I was, I was victim, the victim of personation. And I just reacted. And it's interesting that that occurred at the end of the polling day. Yeah. So oh, yeah. What they used to do was, what they used to do is when it came close to the end, and of course they wouldn't have known who we were, you know, because we, we were new to the area. And they said, these people haven't voted, so they just went through the list and put the votes in. So let's talk about your transition from that experience into civil rights. Was, it, was there a, a linear path or did other things happen? Well, what happened was um, I, during the civil rights movement, I, I we had meetings all over the north in South Derry, Fermanagh, everywhere. And I met a lot of people who were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, and um, John Hume in particular, because the Derry Action Group, he was they were all part of the, the wider civil rights movement and John would have been at all the meetings. And I was very impressed with John's attitude and his, his, his um, leadership uh, approach to everything. And then, of course, he was on television a lot. And I thought, you know, he's right. What he's saying is right. The first letter I ever wrote to the paper was about... Uh, some some John Hune had Jim had been talking a lot on TV, and I, I wrote a letter to the paper saying that uh, that I supported what John Hume was saying. He, there was no SDLP at the time, because I, I I was a Republican, and I felt that what he was saying was true Republicanism, and that was the first letter I ever wrote to the papers, and then. Uh, when the SDLP was set up, as you know, it was set up by six men, what's new in Northern Ireland, uh, who, who came together, actually, you know, because they realised there was a need for an opposition and a proper opposition. And it was founded, actually, the decision was taken in Widor, in my home parish. That's where they met. And they set up the SDLP. And at that stage, I had kind of, civil rights had sort of fallen apart because it had been taken over by you know, left-wing socialists, PDs. It was being used, if you like, by small groups who really didn't have a mandate for anything. 
And I had kind of myself and Con McCluskey from Dungannon and another guy in Dungannon, we had come off the civil rights um, executive. And uh, I kind of, I had a few children at the time. I think I had four at the time or maybe five. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I had, a, I had a lot of small children. And so I was looking after the family. And then the SDLP then were set, it seems had set up a branch in Lurgan, but I only got notice about it on the, the actual morning of setting it up. So I, for some reason I wasn't able to go to it and I didn't go to it. And then something was happening in the Lurgan Council that I was annoyed about. And I wrote to John Hume and in those days there was no emails or all this. <laughs> it wasn't easy to get in touch with me, so I wrote a wee letter to him and I said, told him what was happening in Lurgan it was some discrimination issue, and I said, you know, what are the the SDLP aren't don't seem to be doing anything about it. I got one liner back, dear Bridge. What are you doing about it? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> from John. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing about it? So, uh, <laughs> so that was it. I joined the local party then, and uh, the rest is history. I became the secretary. And I think my first AGM of the branch, which in those days was par for the course. The women were the secretaries, the men were the chairs. Uh-huh. And um, then I eventually became the chair of the local branch and their PR. And I led the first civil rights march in Lurgan, which was after, do you remember the Burntollet march? Of where course, the, my yeah, father Burntollet. was there. Yeah, your father, well, your father was a big SDLP man. I knew yeah. him well. Yeah. Uh, great Irish speaker, John. And... Um, after that, there was to be a march in somewhere in Derry, I can't remember, but it was either either cancelled or put off or whatever. It didn't happen, but we had a march in Lurgan on the same day. So, of course, our march in Lurgan then became a much bigger march, and I was the one who, who along with the, I was asked to lead it and to go up and do the, speak to the police at the front line. And... That was all kind of new to me, you know. But at that stage, of course, there still was no SDLP. But I was kind of well known with the result that when I joined the SDLP and I went to my first uh, annual conference of the SDLP, my local branch had put me forward to run for the executive. And I got a lot of support because there was people like your father and other people that I had known right through the civil rights movement and had worked with who knew me. And they were the, now in the in the SDLP in their local branches. So they all gave me support and I was elected to, shock, to my shock because I'd only one branch. So I went on from there and I eventually then was elected vice chair and then elected chair against uh, the grain of... I think the leadership at that time thought that I wouldn't, one of the key, when I ran for the chair of the party, I know that um, one of the senior leaders in the SDLP said to my husband at the conference the night before, now I, I hope Bridge won't be too disappointed tomorrow now when she doesn't get elected. And my husband didn't say anything and he didn't tell me because he had to go back because the kids were in the house on their own. He didn't tell me that. And then the next day I was elected and I rang to tell him and then he told me. <laughs> Which told me that the senior leadership actually was not supporting me, mm. you know. Because, you know, I was a woman and I was the first woman ever to be the chair of a political party in Ireland. Because 
everything was dominated by men in those days. And I suppose the reason I got elected, I think, is because of my background in civil rights and so many people right throughout the branches in the North in civil rights. I had worked with them in the civil rights movement and they all knew me. And I think that's why I, I got a lot of support from those people. All politics is local. Yeah, all politics is local. They, they, they just knew me and they thought I would. I was up to the job, I don't know. But anyway, I got elected as chair of the party in 1978, I think it was. So let me ask you this. What happened within you that made you want to put your name forward? Was it seeing the injustice? Was it um, coming from a mixed marriage in Guidor? <laughs> was it uh, your personality? Was it um, the line from John Hume, a mixture of all of those? Or was there something else? Well, it was a mixture of all those things, and including the fact that, funnily enough, people say it's in your genes. My grandfather was the chair of the Rural District Council in Donegal in that time. So my grandfather was very much involved in local politics, but, I mean, he was dead before I what was, his was name? born. He was Donny Call, Call. But, um, I, you know, the reason I got involved is I was very happy when the STLP was set up because I knew there was a need because of the way the civil rights movement had fallen apart, because there, there was, there were too many different factions all everybody trying to, wanted different everyone want and everyone using it for their own end. That you needed a proper political party with a structure and an organisation and a policy that people could identify with and could support, and that they could elect people knowing who they were electing. So uh, there was a need for an actual proper political party, which, you know, the, Nas the old Nationalist Party was, was not organised in that way. It was kind of, you know, sometimes the local parish priest would decide that he would go to Austin Curry and say, we want you to run, you know, that sort of mm. thing. So I realised that the only way to actually bring about change was through having a political party that could know exactly what they wanted, what their policies were, have a strategy and bring that strategy to the people, get their support and then promote that strategy politically. And that's what they did, the SDLP did. But that's why I joined. So the civil rights movement, as you're talking about it, it reminds me of Occupy, that Occupy movement, which yeah. is, it started off as whatever it was, but then it became every purpose for every person. Yes, well, what happened was, you know, there were a lot of different voices. Because it was in, in, in the beginning, it was all the nationalist community and, and every Catholic and national, they all supported it really because they all knew that they needed change. But then there were little factions like there, was the, there were people from far left labour views and there was people, the PDs, the student movement, and they had were very radical. And uh, there was then... Uh, Sinn Féin, not Sinn, the stickies they call them now, the, the um, original Sinn Féin, who then became the Workers' Party subsequently, but they were uh, very radical. Is this the People's Democracy? No, no, not the People's Democracy. It was... Um, so the Workers' Party? The Republican movements. Okay, okay. They were called the Republican movements then, and then they became the Workers' Party. Mm. But the Republican movements uh, were, I think... I could see it when I was on the executive of, of uh, civil rights. It was being used and we discovered that people were being sent to America and they were talking to the Black Panthers and um, 
we weren't told. It wasn't discussed within the executive. These people were sent because they had infiltrated and uh, they probably were genuine in their own way, but it wasn't what I believed in. And you needed a structure that you could believe in. And uh, I, I realised that the civil rights movement was too unwieldy and made up of too many people who didn't all have the same agenda and that you just needed a proper political party. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, the people's democracy and why it didn't go in that direction? Yeah, well, the people's democracy was very much a students' union and they were very radical. And in many ways, they did radical things that actually, you know, it was their idea to have the march to, to the Burntollet March, really. Bel- uh, Belfast to Derry. Yeah, yeah, Belfast to Derry. And I suppose in a way, uh, that really exposed again, Northern Ireland for what it was because of the the way the police that, you know, they were attacked and the police didn't protect them. <clears throat> and so they were very radical and I suppose people had to do radical things in those days. And, you know, some of us were, some of them were more radical than us. And I thought that people's democracy were very radical, but it was really a student's movement and I wasn't a student, mm-hmm. you know, I was just a housewife. What did you think looking on on those people? Like the likes of uh, Eamon McCann, Michael well, Farrell? I thought, uh, I thought Michael Farrell and Kevin Boyle were extremely intelligent and extremely committed and very good. But to me, they were far too, they were too far left. Hmm. I wasn't that far left. And Eamon McCann, of course, was very left, but very committed and quite radical. And to this day, I really, really, he's one of the people I admire most. He's so passionate. Yeah, because he's passionate and he he utterly believed in everything he was doing. Uh, it was never about Eamon, it was about the cause. And, you know, he was always very impressive and I th- still think he was, he was a very, very good fellow and a great civil writer. But his politics were too far left for me, just, you know. Do you want to share some thoughts on Bernadette Devon? Bernadette, yes, another person for whom I have a lot of time because Bernadette Devlin, in many ways, is the forgotten, the forgotten heroine of civil rights because she was very radical and she really exposed to the world uh, what Northern Ireland was, particularly when she was in Westminster and she did very radical things, as you know. She crossed the floor and she slapped the Home Secretary. And um, she was very committed and still is committed uh, to helping ordinary people. Uh, she was very young and I suppose she could have been anything. If, if she had joined a political party, you know, she could have gone places. She could have done very well. But she had so, such a belief in her own radical ideas and... She just, she was a firebrand. She was very important to the civil rights movement because she captured the imagination of the world when she went to Westminster. And all of those things were important in promoting uh, the, the reality of Northern Ireland. But I, I have a lot of admiration for Bernadette. And she's still working with ordinary people. She works in Dungannon, the community with um, with migrants and has set up a community centre, has done amazing work there. It never got, 
never materially got anything out of it, but was not interested. She was only interested in just doing what was good for people. So the SDLP gets formed. To what extent do you think that the SDLP represented all classes of people in Northern Ireland? Well, I think the SDLP did, in a sense, represent, uh, I suppose, what you would call the centre-left in Northern Ireland of the nationalist community. On On the issue of the constitutional question, they certainly... The fact that they they were the first people to say that you could not uh, have a united Ireland unless you had consent and agreement within the from the unionist community, that was a radical idea at that time, and it was opposed by what is it, Sinn Féin and by people who thought no 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 the unionists don't have any rights this is a sovereign country, and I think a lot of people, it was common sense it was realistic. And it was the first time it was said and a lot of people from the nationalist community accepted because they had seen sporadic violence over the years from IRA and which, of course, produced counter-violence from the other side and didn't go anywhere, you know. And they realised that this was a much more sensible, productive way of proceeding. And so I think that the nationalist community as a whole supported John Hume's leadership in particular and what he was saying about the need for reconciliation, the need to recognise the rights of unionists as well as the rights of nationalists, which was new in a sense because the old idea was that unionists had no right. This was our country and unionists, if they didn't like it, you know, just had to put up with it. Ireland was one. That was the nationalist view until John Hume began to say, look, there are two. There are two issues here. There's there's the unionist community, who have a different view to us, and there's the nationalist community, and we have to come together and get an agreement. And people latched on to that. And uh, we also had had, uh, you know, the SDLP had were were a social democratic and labour party. We had views about how people should be treated, and we supported the trade unions and all of that as well. And how successful do you think? Hume and SELP were in reaching across to the moderate unionists? I think uh, it was very difficult. It's still difficult in Northern Ireland because although Brexit has changed things, but it was very difficult because people had been brought up on, you know, what we have, we hold, not an inch. Um, the The Catholics are out to get you. The South is going to take you over. It's going to be you're going to be pushed into a Catholic state. And they were fed that for years. It was they were it was with their mother's milk they got it. So and the Orange Order promoted that idea and the Unionists did. So it was very difficult to to convince uh, any unionist that people like John Hume, who said that they eventually supported the coming together of a new Ireland, as as he you call it a new Ireland, not a United Ireland. They saw that as, ah, well, that's a trap. And of course, the unionist leaders like Bill Craig and others kept telling them it was a trap. You know, they're only trying to, you know, to fool you. It was difficult. But interestingly enough, John Hume, when he ran for your John Hume always did get a cross-community vote because I know uh, in the European election that he did get unionist votes, moderate unionist votes, Uh 
and I know myself, I spoke once to a unionist in the earlier days of John Hume, who said, you know, he said, I, I really wanted to vote for for John Hume, you know. But when I went into the poll, he says, my my pen wouldn't go to the, go to the right place. Do you know, that was the way they were. They, they just could not bring themselves to do it, but some of them did. And... Uh, you know, we did have very few unionists in the party at that time, but uh, who had been unionists from the other side, but very few, but we had a few, not very many. So you knew John whenever he was a teacher? Yes. And do you think he was a reluctant politician? I think he didn't... I don't think John ever set out to be a politician. He just... He started off with, uh, as a teacher involved... He saw what was happening in Derry in particular, and in particular with the housing situation and what was happening in the poverty. And he wanted to change things, and that's why he set up the credit union. He was the main driver behind the credit union all over Ireland because he saw people were getting into debt with with, with people that were exploiting them, you know. And... Um, so that was his first foray into trying to help people. So he always had this thing of trying to make life better for people. And his first thing was into the credit union movement. And I suppose then there was pressure coming from people in the grassroots to set up a party. I remember going to visit um, uh, a teacher in the training college, from uh, Colin Gillespie, he was from Fermanagh, but he was teach- he was lecturing the training college and had been in civil rights with me. And I remember going to visit him one day and saying, you know, he, he had been in St. Columns and Derry with John Hume. And I said, you know, you have to get, try and get them to set up a party. You know, we all were having that idea, but we needed, we needed a party that was saying, that was, in a sense, was radical. It was radical in those days to say unionists had rights, that you, could, that you couldn't have a New Ireland without them, that they had to, to be accommodated. Still kind of radical. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it is, but it's not. Do you know what? I think, I think things are changing. I think Brexit has made a big difference. And I think there are people from within the unionist community, even the unionist business community, who can see that maybe, you know, the look south... The South is no longer the, the state it used to be, you know. It's not a Roman Catholic state anymore. It's not a Catholic state for Catholic people. It's a progressive uh, state and uh, within Europe, uh, standing on its own feet, and where everything that's happening, you know, their, their way of life is better. They're, they're, they're earning more. They're their own bosses. They don't have to depend on... On an, you know, the unionists are beginning, must some of them be questioning how many times have they got to be stabbed in the back before they realise that Britain is not interested in them? You know, it's an English parliament. I believe it is. It's not even interested in Scotland or Wales. But I think there is a different, like, there's a different kind of a feeling in the North now that there are people who are persuadable, but you won't persuade them by telling them, you know, it's all over. The the, the population, the Catholics are growing. It's, everything's against you. It's all over. You've had it. That's not a way forward. Telling them that a new Ireland is inevitable is not the way to go. But I think 
uh, and and having a, a referendum at the moment is not the way to go because they're not ready for that. It would a referendum would would not vote for a United Ireland or a New Ireland at the moment because nobody knows what it means even. But I think the time will come when uh, there will be a, a, a probably a, a feeling that there should be a referendum. Might be ten years. I don't know how long. But at that point, it, the governments, particularly the Irish government, have to be able to have prepared the way and tell people what a new Ireland is going to look like. You know what it's going to mean for unionists. You can't it, you can't do a Brexit and ask people to vote for a pig and a poke. You know, just on on the basis of of um, aspiration or their gut feeling. That's what would happen now. Unionists would all vote. You know. So I think I think the whole thing is changing. It's no longer it used to be when I went to live in Northern Ireland in the sixties, it was a unionist state for unionist people. And they were in charge and the nationalists had to just put up with it and suck it up. It that is no longer the case. I think the Good Friday agreement changed a lot because and civil rights changed a lot because civil rights allowed uh, with the new legislation on, on discrimination and all that, it allowed people from the Catholic community to get promoted, to get into jobs that they never would have been allowed into. And that was changing sort of, you know, the, the structures in Northern Ireland, if you like. And then uh, the SDLP was in councils and they were able to, you know, make progress and there was power sharing in councils, which was introduced by the SDLP, and that was making a difference. And some councils were actually being quite progressive about it. I think Derry was the first one, strangely enough, because it was the capital city of, of gerrymander. And uh, I think my area, Craigavon, was probably the last. I was a councillor there for a while, I know. So, uh, you know, gradually things have been changing. Civil rights began a change the SDLP, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the fact that unionists uh, were were able to bring their people to agree to the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, Trimble was, you know, he was heroic. Absolutely. He had a nightmare. Yeah. And he had the most difficult job ever to do. And he did it for the right reason. And he probably had misapprehensions and he suffered for it, but... Without Trimble, there would not. Without Hume, there would not have been a Good Friday Agreement because he built the structures for it and worked for it. And without Trimble, it wouldn't have been carried. And Is that's it, a fact. He had great leadership. He had great leadership. He wasn't the easiest of leaders. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a warm personality. He wasn't good with people. Uh, he was more an academic, but he understood strategically what needed to be done and he was able to convince enough people in his own in his own community that that was the way forward and that was a feat mm. against, against so much oh, pressure I guess the DUP who were standing outside the walls baying at him you know and and uh, like it was he was under huge pressure and then his own people deserting him you know Trimble and Arlene Foster and those walking away it was very difficult for him, and we we thought it was fall- on the morning of the Good Friday Agreement. We thought it was falling apart because they began to have, you know, he was under such pressure, and eventually, anyway, he he made the decision and he brought his people with him, and that change that began another change, where people 
people could see that change was possible, you know. And I think people will also begin, the next step will be when people in Northern Ireland from all sides will begin to see that change is possible and that change is not necessarily to their detriment, you know, because, you know, to be part of a new Ireland within the European Union with all the benefits that brings uh, it would be quite attractive, will be quite attractive eventually to people. And I, don't, I think, I'm not, not an economist or anything like that, but I don't think Brexit is doing anything for the British. They keep saying it will eventually, but at the moment it has been a disaster. You're, you're alluding a lot to the economic prosperity that could exist in Northern Ireland. And Hume was quite uh, instrumental in bringing organisations like DuPont to, yes, to the was. North. Well, Hume always maintained that uh, he said his father said, his father used to say, you know, when they had all these Republican attacks and everything and all these big demonstrations with flags, you can't eat a flag. And Hume always said, you can't eat a flag. You have to live, you have to have a job, you have to have a bit of prosperity. So Hume, when he became Minister of Commerce in the First Assembly, his first mission was to go to America and bring jobs to Northern Ireland. I always said... Sinn Féin went to America to get money for the IRA and for Sinn Féin. John Hume went to America to get jobs for people in Northern Ireland. That was the difference. It was a different perspective. So he brought DuPont to Derry. He persuaded uh, very influential people in, 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 in America and in the real, not in the, the, the smaller pro-Irish groups, but in where, where the power lay and in the senators and the Congress, Tip O'Neill, uh, the Kennedys, all of these people. He persuaded people to try and do what they could to help him to bring jobs and companies to invest in Northern Ireland. Now, he was, it, was, it didn't last long, but that's what he was doing. And it was, that's what, he, he saw that if people could prosper and could have a decent living, that it could change the atmosphere. It'd be hard to be out throwing petrol bombs the night before. Yeah, if you, yeah. Have to get... if, you were, if you had a good job and you were working and you had prospects, uh, there wasn't any point in getting into trouble. You know, I, I remember some people one time ported down where there was a lot of trouble. That was my area. And I remember one mother coming to me in despair that her young fella had been out throwing whatever at the time when the riots were on, and I could understand young people getting involved, you know, because they were mad, they were angry. And of course, as they say, he was lifted and he was brought to court and he was going to be convicted. And Anyway, I, I, I can't remember what exactly I did, but I managed to support him anyway, and he, 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 he got off, and she came to me, the same woman came to me in a pub in Guidor about seven or eight years ago, and she said, do you remember me? And I, said, I couldn't remember anyone. She said, you know, I'm so-and-so's mother, she said. And she said, you know, he's doing great now. He's gone to America and he has a great job and he's done very well. And thanks to you. But, you know, those were the things that made a difference to people. Being able to have a proper life. You know, not feeling they had to be out throwing stones and bombs. My father talks about being in a garage and dairy being on fire outside yeah, and yeah. these these kids coming in yeah. uh, probably buying matches or fire or some some yeah. fire combustible stuff and the priest who was in the garage said to the young man um, 
you know, you're burning your community. Yeah. And the young man turning around to the priest and saying, what effing community? We have no effing community. Oh, yeah. We have no effing jobs. And yeah. saying to a priest. Yeah. And, you know, whenever my father tells me this story, I, I'm taking it back, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if you have nothing, it, it's... There's I mean, nothing, you've nothing to lose by going out and... Throwing bombs. Yeah. I mean that that was the truth of it, and it's the same all over the world. If people are not treated as decent human beings should be treated, then they're going to rebel. And it's particularly the younger people who see it. I mean, the only thing they know is to just hit back. Yeah, yeah. Tune in next Tuesday to hear the rest of that conversation. Have a great week. This has been a Solitary Media Original Podcast and Production. 